Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Connor, and I'm your host for this series of interviews produced by Q Squared Solutions. I'm having conversations with experts who are sharing their thoughts on laboratory considerations for immuno-oncology and companion diagnostics development. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Patrick Herbin, Senior Director and Global Head of Translational Genomics at Q Squared Solutions. Dr. Herbin, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Our topic today is the role of genomics in clinical trials for immuno-oncology. So first of all, genomics has come a long way from the days of being primarily a discovery tool. Tell us a little bit about how that happened. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. I think uh, when I first got involved in genomics, it was used primarily in sort of research and discovery. And the idea was to try and tie uh, specific genomic features, be they SNPs or the expression of specific genes, to either outcomes or some type of phenotype. And I think what we're seeing now is all of that discovery work is beginning to pay off. So we're now able to translate, and hence, uh, you know, my title within Q Squared Solutions, translational genomics is all about translating those early research and discovery uh, items into something that can now be used. Uh, eventually in patient care. And where we're seeing that first is the incorporation really into clinical trials. It used to be that essentially all of the genomic data that was being produced as part of clinical trials was purely exploratory in nature. We're doing a great deal of that now. There's no doubt about that. However, now we're actually translating those into real uses. So for example, we might have specific markers that we're using for patient selection. We might have specific markers that are candidates for eventual development into companion diagnostic. And so we are taking them into clinical trials, characterizing them further. And the real beauty of genomics is in addition to these type of translational activities, we still can do all of the uh, exploratory work by doing things like exome and full transcriptome sequencing. This allows us to zoom in or focus on specific genomic features. Again, the expression of specific genes or the presence or absence of specific SNPs or other types of genomic legions that we're able to then transition into companion diagnostics. So what's exciting now in immuno-oncology is all the technologies being brought to bear from anatomic pathology, immunoassay, to flow cytometry and genomics to understand the processes going on in each tumor to help guide the choice of therapies and ideally come up with companion diagnostics that are highly predictive of therapeutic success. So we had a previous conversation and you mentioned two things are important for the adoption and success of genomics in clinical trials. One is gaining the confidence of clinical scientists and the other was ability to manage samples appropriately. So let's start with what genomics can do for clinical scientists. Give us a high-level view of biomarker strategy in immuno-oncology. Yeah, um, that's an interesting topic, and I'll begin sort of prior to immuno-oncology when targeted therapies were all the rage. There were uh, certain genomic features like mutations in genes such as BRAF or EGFR that could be tied to specific therapies. And so the the idea of being able to screen patients to see whether or not they have those specific genomic lesions and then decide whether or not they can be eligible for therapies, uh, that's actually really commonplace with targeted therapies. 
Now, as we're moving into immuno-oncology, the landscape of potential biomarkers is much more vast uh, than uh, what it is for targeted therapies. And we're starting to see the introduction of certain genomic features like tumor mutational burden or uh, microsatellite instability or mismatch repair defects. These are broad-based genomic features as opposed to specific point mutations these broad genomic features can be indicative of the, the ground state of that tumor or to what degree the genome uh, has become unstable. And these types of genomic features have now been uh, correlated with the efficacy of certain immuno-oncology products. That being said, I think we would be foolish to think that we've discovered all of the biomarkers. We haven't. And so one of the reasons why genomics is becoming increasingly relevant in these types of trials is because not only can we use a, an assay such as whole exome sequencing or even certain types of targeted sequencing to identify whether or not there's a high tumor mutational load in a specific patient, but in addition to characterizing those features that are already known to be tied to the efficacy of certain immuno-oncology products, we can also identify new features in the genome to correlate with outcomes. So, for example, we can look at the expression of certain genes within the tumor to understand whether or not specific immune cells have already been recruited into that tumor so by understanding that tumor microenvironment, we're now able to characterize so many different um, genomic features. I don't think that there's any one particular genomic feature or for that matter, any one particular anatomic pathology feature that is going to be the single best feature. But instead, I think this multidisciplinary approach where we understand really what's going on in that particular individual's tumor, that's what's going to be important for us to understand whether or not a particular immuno-oncology agent is going to be efficacious or not for a particular uh, patient. I want to dig into that a little bit if we can, because you described what it seems to me as a very wide net, and yet that's a phrase you used previously. But now, rather than, as you mentioned, with a targeted therapy, you're looking for a specific mutation in a single gene or protein that might give you a chance at having a therapy work. And now you've got multiple markers spread throughout the genome that you can look at, and maybe they don't all have to appear, but you will get a bigger picture of all the options you have. Is that right? Yeah, and and I think that's uh, that's reflective of the approach to therapeutics that you're seeing in immuno-oncology. And so if we think about targeted therapies, essentially what they are, are in many cases, small, sometimes large molecules, but they're basically therapeutics, molecules that are directed against specific targets so that they can interrupt the action of like, say, a specific kinase that might be part of a signal transduction uh, pathway um, that's overactive in a particular type of cancer. Let's look at the immuno-oncology approach for a moment. Essentially, what that approach says is, you know, a tumor, you know, of course, what the immune system does is recognize and distinguish between self and non-self. And when non-self is encountered in the, in the form of a microbe or other type of foreign agent, an immune response is raised. The immune system then attacks that foreign agent and deals with it accordingly. Now, when a, a tumor happens, a tumor is essentially when your own genome has become somewhat unstable and has accumulated certain mutations. Because these mutations have accumulated in that tumor, 
it should be recognized as non-self. And so the immune system should be able to recognize it as non-self because it has mutations, it has genome sequence that we haven't seen before. And so it should be able to recognize it, but tumors are very smart and they have ways of evading the immune system. Um, so immuno-oncology approaches basically prevent the tumor from that type of immune evasion. And so if a tumor can be shown to be, say, already infiltrated by the immune system, but the immune system is basically being shut off locally by that tumor through a number of different mechanisms, we can now intervene. And so understanding whether or not the tumor carries a high mutational burden, whether it has a lot of mutations, which would seem to make it more uh, amenable to these types of therapies, that's very important. But the key difference between the immuno-oncology approaches and the targeted therapy approaches is those the mutations that the tumor carries are almost immaterial. It doesn't matter that they uh, have a specific mutation in, say, EGFR or a fusion in the ALK gene, et cetera. It, we don't need to know necessarily the composition of the mutations per se. What's more important is whether those mutations are present in any gene in such a way that they can actually be recognized as non-self um, or neoantigens by the immune system and thus engage the immune system to attack that tumor. So that's why we, we're seeing the introduction of these broad-based approaches and these sort of wide screening nets because the exact composition of those mutations may not matter as much as the fact that those mutations are present at high copy number. And then what, what does that look like when we're talking about the development of a companion diagnostic, when you have all these perhaps biomarkers that you could use? What, what's the advantage yeah, that's, of that? That I think is a really interesting question because if you're looking at something like tumor mutational load, you can't just look at a few genes to decide whether or not you have a high tumor mutational burden. That's something where you're going to have to look at a, at a rather large fraction uh, of genes. However, if you think through some of the biological pathways, the, the sort of core thought process here is that a cancer occurs, you start to get defects in, say, uh, mismatch repair or homologous recombination repair, which leads to the production of these neoantigens. You basically introduce mutations into your own genome, and because your repair mechanisms are no longer working, you now see an accumulation of those mutations. And, and one way to look at that is you say, well, can I look at defects in mismatch repair genes directly as a way of understanding whether or not if there are defects in mismatch repair, then uh, of course I'm going to accumulate mutations. Another thing that you might do is say, well, if we do have defects in mismatch repair, what happens to the genome? Well, we know that there's the chance of new mutations or neoantigens arising in that tumor genome, but also a structure such as mic microsatellites, which depend critically upon high fidelity replication, they may actually become unstable. And so MSI high or, or microsatellite instability high uh, is now a known biomarker that's predictive of success of certain immuno-oncology therapeutics. So by understanding the biological pathways and the context in which these different types of genomic events are occurring, we may be able to find biomarkers that are indicative of the underlying genomic processes that are happening, but are nonetheless a little bit more compact than, say, doing a whole exome sequence. And then in the long run, tell me if I get this right, there's the opportunity to, 
to look at all these biomarkers in sort of a single, maybe not a single test, but fewer tests. What I'm getting at is reduction in serial testing of, yeah, that's, of a patient. Yeah, actually, you bring up a really good point, which is, I think, one of the one of the downsides potentially to targeted therapies in particular. So you, you might imagine that you have several different candidate mutations that might be driving a particular tumor. And I've used the examples of rearrangements in the ALK gene or uh, specific mutations in EGFR or RAS or BRAF. There's a whole host of genes that are known to be mutated and that can drive cancers. And of course, there are FDA-approved tests for many of these mutations. If you do one test and you're negative for it, well, now you don't have, you can't put the patient on therapy for that particular therapeutic that's tied uh, to that specific mutation. So then you do the next test. And if you're negative for that, then you can do the next test. Well, imagine with next generation sequencing, we can gather all of those tests for ALK rearrangements, for EGFR mutations, for RAS mutations, for uh, BRAF mutations, and many, many others, in addition to broad-based genomic features like MSI, or microsatellite instability, or like tumor mutational burden, or like defects in mismatch repair or homologous recombination defects, you can gather all of that into a single assay that you then perform on a patient. And now, instead of looking for one result, you can look at many results and get an integrated result. Many people refer to this almost as a companion therapeutic strategy rather than a companion diagnostic strategy. Whereas a companion diagnostic is you have a diagnostic test that makes you eligible for one therapy. In a companion therapeutic strategy, you have one test that could potentially put you onto multiple therapies. And I think that that's a really interesting future development that we're already starting to see the fruits of. Yeah, looking forward to seeing more about that. So let's move on to sample management and describe how the context of a central lab contributes to the success of genomics and clinical trials with regard to that sample management. That's that's such an important consideration. And, you know, for those of us who grew up in the research and development world, as opposed to the clinical development world, it's often an underappreciated aspect of what it takes to actually develop a drug and get it onto market. We have to understand and, and always be cognizant of the fact that a clinical trial ultimately is just a big experiment involving humans. We're putting uh, some substance, a drug, into a human and seeing what happens to them. We have a number of different assessments, be they safety assessments or PK assessments or PD assessments or exploratory biomarker assessments. All of these different ways we want to measure what's happening to that person. You know, and I haven't even talked about measures of efficacy, et cetera. But if we're thinking about the fact that, you know, you, you provide a, a test article to a human subject and then you take samples from that subject, be they biopsy samples of tumors or blood that you might use for circulating tumor DNA analysis or for other types of analyses, all of those samples are so precious because they are tied to the clinical data for that particular person. And uh, the success or failure of the clinical program is going to hinge upon a lot of those results. So, once you collect those samples, we, we all know from our own research careers that if you don't safeguard a sample, if you don't 
get it to a point where it's nice and stable, say frozen or otherwise preserved. If you don't get it to that point where it's preserved in the appropriate time frame, if you don't ship it to a testing laboratory under conditions where everything is safeguarded and preserved, stability is key in all of these measurements, whether we're talking about our genomic assessments. And of course, if we're doing DNA analyses versus RNA analysis, the uh, sample collection and preservation and shipment and stability requirements can be very different depending upon the type of molecule we're looking at and the type of assay that we're going to do. And that's really where central labs are critical because our clinical sites uh, participating in clinical trials are going to harvest these samples from their patients according to instructions that we provide them. They're going to collect them into containers that we provide them that are pre-barcoded so that when the sample comes in to the central laboratory using a courier that we specify, using shipment conditions that we specify, and we do all of this, we work all of this out with the sponsors of the clinical development program so that we don't have trivial problems with the sample so that we know exactly how good the sample is when it comes into the central laboratory. And because all of this has been specified beforehand, because we've worked all of this out beforehand, we now know that that sample is good. Or if for whatever reason the sample wasn't collected properly, we can look through the sample provenance, we can look through all of the documentation associated with that sample, and we can make that discovery that this sample is not something that we should analyze and include in the clinical data. Of course, we don't want that to happen. We want all of the samples that are collected uh, to be good and useful in the context of the trial. But if a sample was not collected properly, if it was not stored within its stability window, then that's something that a central laboratory is designed to understand so that we can reject it and make sure that it doesn't skew the data in a way that we don't want it to be skewed. It's not the sexy part of a clinical trial, but it's basic blocking and tackling. And if if that doesn't go right, all the fancy stuff is for naught. Oh, you 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 couldn't have said it any better. I mean, it's it's so much of clinical trials is about logistics and making sure that those samples are harvested correctly, that they are brought to the testing facility correctly, and that they're finally that they're tested uh, correctly. But you're absolutely right. No matter how interesting and informative our assays are potentially, that potential will not be realized if we don't manage the logistics and get that sample to the testing facility uh, in a proper way. Dr. Patrick Herbin, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. If listeners are interested in learning more, Q-Squared Solutions is hosting a free immuno-oncology scientific symposium on March 21st, 2019 in San Francisco. To register, go to www.q2labsolutions.com events.